every year my job completely changes. So whether that's, hey, I got to get really good at fundraising or I got to get really good at building a sales org or I get really good at hiring the most talented people and poaching them from the biggest companies on the planet. Or in 2015, I had to get really good at taking a company public. Welcome to Second in Command. Brought to you by COO Alliance, where top-level COOs share the insights, tactics, and strategies that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this edition of the Second in Command podcast, the chief behind the chief. Today, we're talking with Harley Finkelstein. Harley is a Canadian businessman, entrepreneur, and public speaker. He's also the best known as the Chief Operating Officer for Shopify. He's on the board of the C100 and an advisor to both Omer's Ventures and Felicia's Ventures. He's also a dragon on CBC Dragon's Den, which is the Canadian version of Shark Tank. In his early life, Harley was born and raised in Montreal, Canada, and at 17, he founded a t-shirt company while attending McGill University, later transferred to Concordia University and received his bachelor's degree in economics. He then attended the University of Ottawa, where he founded the Law MBA Society and also the Canadian MBA Oath while working towards his law degree and his MBA. After completing both his law degree and his MBA, Harley worked at a law firm in Toronto for a year. And then in 2009, he met Tobias, who is the CEO of Shopify, and they started talking about opportunities for the company. Harley was then hired soon after that and was named the chief platform officer. And in 2014, Harley was appointed as a member of the C100 board. The C100 is an organization that supports Canadian technology companies as a bridge between Canada and the Silicon Valley. In 2016, Harley was named the COO of Shopify. That same year, he was inducted into the Order of Ottawa by Mayor Jim Watson. So Harley, welcome to the show. Great, thanks for having me. Uh, really glad to be here. Yeah, I appreciate it. Really looking forward to learning from you today. So just to um, to kind of start us off, how did you grow in your, your COO role when you, I guess, left law? Was Were you in law or your MBA when you met Tobias? So I, uh, I was born in Montreal. Uh, and I lived there until I was about 12 years old. And then when I was 12, I, my family moved to South Florida uh, to a place called Boca Raton, which uh, is, is a great place if you're retired, not a great place if you're, uh, if you're a young man and, and want to have some fun. Uh, and so um, after high school, I ended, up, I ended up moving back to Canada to go to McGill University. Decided uh, my first year of McGill to start a business, mostly out of necessity. I had to start supporting myself. So I built a little t-shirt business and uh, we started making t-shirts for universities uh, across, across Canada um, and, and built a really nice little company. When I finished undergrad, I had a bunch of uh, really great mentors uh, in my life at that point. And most of them convinced me that that t-shirt business that I had really had no competitive advantage. There was no, uh, there was no moat around the business. And so even if I was selling you know, quite a few t-shirts, uh, you know, tens of thousands of t-shirts to all these universities... Um, it was very easy to disrupt me in the same way that I disrupted um, other incumbents. One mentor in particular uh, convinced me that uh, to become a better entrepreneur, I may want to consider going to law school. Mm-hmm. And he, he happened to be teaching law at the University of Ottawa uh, in 2005. And so he's like, why don't you apply to, to the University of Ottawa and, and, and go to law school there? And uh, at that point, I, you know, I, again, I, I, I liked business. I loved entrepreneurship. I, I, I knew I was going to be an entrepreneur the rest of my life, but I wasn't sure where I was going to go with entrepreneurship. And so the, the ability to uh, learn more about the law around negotiation, around some very complex corporate finance understanding and philosophies that I would get in law school, that was very appealing to me. 
And so 2005, I moved from Montreal to Ottawa and uh, started law school. Uh, although I, I really enjoyed my first couple weeks of school uh, when I got to, when I got here, um, I, I didn't know anyone here. I had no friends. I had no family in Ottawa. Um, I just had this one mentor who was teaching law. And when I began to ask around uh, where all the entrepreneurs hung out, I was I was pointed into a particular direction. Um, and, and just an aside on that, one of the things that I've done throughout my life, whether it was living in Montreal or then moving to Florida, moving back to Montreal, moving to Ottawa. I always found that entrepreneurs in any city uh, were, were typically where I'd find my tribe, like-minded people who uh, I can develop real, really good relationships with. And right. so moved to Ottawa, asked where the entrepreneurs hung out, and um, I was directed to a coffee shop in the Glebe, which is a small little uh, area, small, really nice area of Ottawa. And I was told that every Friday night, a group of really smart entrepreneurs hung out there. And so without you know, giving it any, any, any more thought, I showed up on one Friday night to that coffee shop and I met five or six entrepreneurs. And it was, uh, it was some people that, that, that you know and, and some of your listeners may know. It was uh, Sam Zaid, who at the time was just building Get Around. He's, he's recently obviously moved to San Francisco to build Get Around Out. It was Paul Lem, who built Spartan Bioscience. It was Luke Levesque, who built TravelPod, who's now uh, uh, a senior leader at Facebook. Wow. And it, and it, was, uh, and it was Toby. And the interesting part about Toby was it's clearly, I mean, you know, both of us, we are, we are polar opposites. Um, he's cerebral. He's, you know, somewhat introverted. I am, I, I speak too much and I'm, I'm far more extroverted than he is, but him and Toby and I really connected, uh, at these sort of weekly coffee meetups. And Toby at that point was just transitioning out of selling snowboards online to the software company. Um, as you probably know, he built, uh, he, he wrote this piece of software to sell these snowboards, uh, because he couldn't find any great software on the market and very quickly realized that selling snowboards may be a good idea, but, but selling the software behind the snowboard shop may be a great idea in that he can help entrepreneurs from all over the world build their own businesses. And when I met him and he just transitioned away from snowboards into software, I was looking for a way to continue selling t-shirts, but in, in, while concurrently going to class. In undergrad, I was able to skip class and just show up for the exams. But in law school, using the Socratic method, which is basically them yelling out your name randomly and you haven't an answered the question, it didn't work nearly as well. And so I needed a, a business that would run virtually. And I ended up becoming one of Shopify's first customers. I built a t-shirt, an online t-shirt shop called Smoofer uh, with my best buddy in law school. And you know, uh, ran it concurrently with class and, and, and my and my my course curriculum uh, all throughout uh, all throughout law school and then throughout business school I did my MBA. After uh, so that was about 2008 at that point. Uh, in 2008, uh, I decided that I wanted to get called to the bar. I wasn't sure that I wanted to be a lawyer. Uh, to be honest with you, law school for me was was actually finishing school as an entrepreneur. It was, it was like etiquette school to be an entrepreneur, okay. yes. which, which was really exciting to me. It really had very little to do with the law itself. It had to do with a way of thinking, a way of arguing, a way of negotiating. It taught me how to read 4,000 pages and pick out the one line that mattered most. Um, it taught me some. You know, it taught me how to be a bit more articulate in how I express myself, and so I, I loved law school. And, and but I knew I didn't want to practice. Um, but I did want to get called to the bar because I, I felt that was kind of the last step in the process. And so, uh, in 2008, 2009, I moved out to Toronto and I worked for uh, a pretty large law firm. Uh, and I articled for ten months, and I absolutely hated it. It was it was the worst ten months of my life. Unlike entrepreneurship, which I felt was all about. Um, it was really a meritocracy. 
uh, I felt that the legal profession, not too dissimilar from things like the accounting profession, a lot of it was about legacy. It mattered how long you've been there. It mattered who you knew. Sure. Um, and I just, I, it just didn't feel right to me. And so uh, I think I stayed 10 months in one day longer, which was exactly the amount of time I needed to get called to the, the Ontario bar. And, and then I called Toby and I said, I, I, I love Shopify. I love the product. At that point, it was really, it was Toby and Daniel and Cody who were really the three uh, kind of co-founders of the company. And they were all brilliant engineers and designers. And, and uh, I'd known them you know, for a couple of years because I was an early merchant and early customer of Shopify's. And these were three of the smartest people I'd ever, I'd ever met. And what was really cool was that they had a really great product. Uh, they were beginning to find product market fit. But none of them really self-identified uh, necessarily as someone who was who was focused on the business side of, of a company. Uh, mm-hmm. They were really on the technical and the product side. And so mm-hmm. I called Toby in 2009 and said, um, I'd like to move to Ottawa and help you, Cody and Daniel, build out Shopify. And I'd like to sort of you know take on the business responsibilities for the company. And that was it. And then, and, and I, you know, my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife and, and the mother of my child, uh, we we moved to Ottawa uh, in early 2010. And I think my my initial job, I remember asking Toby, I said, "So, what do you need me to do?" And he and he basically said, "Whatever, uh, whatever you can." And <laughs> I remember sort of thinking that um, my job was was finding the things that they either didn't want to do or didn't know how to do. And also making sure that this amazing product that they had built, which I felt was by far the best product on the market, uh, that we were able to properly commercialize it, sell it, market it, um, retain customers, really build a business. And I would say my first year or two at Shopify was was mostly just being a Swiss Army knife. We raised our first round of financing in uh, mid-2010. And we had no CFO, we had no GC. And so... I helped raise the round. I, I figured out what what a cap table needed to look like, and and, <laughs> and along with Toby, we went ahead and raised seven million dollars, um, and that was led by Bessemer. But that really was sort of my my first introduction to being in a sort of chief operating officer role or a second in command role, which was that my job isn't necessarily one you know this one thing and do only that one thing. It was basically figure out what are the gaps of the company that were going to prevent us from getting to the next step or the next level. That the the others the other three were not were not tackling, and really the first couple of years it was mostly around building a business around Shopify, building a partnerships team, building a business development team, figuring out what sales should look like. We didn't have a CMO at that time, so we're very closely trying to build out a, a marketing team. But really, that was that was that was the first couple of years here. It was really just about being a Swiss Army knife and, and helping really Toby, uh, however I could. It's interesting. I've I've talked a lot about that in the early days. You need to get the the true jack of all trades, master of none. The people that can pick up anything that needs to get done and run with it. And it sounds like that's what you were. But you identified something partway through when you were talking there that was really intriguing, and it was that Toby was the inward facing, more cerebral, product focused engineer, and you were very much the outward facing culture. You didn't say marketing PR guy, but but you were almost the face of the company in a lot of ways. How did that... And, and Harvard actually wrote an article about 10 or 15 years ago called The Misunderstood Role of the COO. And there were seven distinct types of COOs in that article. And, and you were one of those types, whereas another one is more inward facing when the CEO is the outward part of the brand. How does Toby deal with the fact that you have such a strong personality around the brand? How does he... How does he get around that when so many entrepreneurs and CEOs um, can't let go of that? 
So in, 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 in actuality, he enabled it. Um, he, you know, he, what he's really great at is he's really great at, at seeing uh, in people what they may not see in themselves because I was, I was, I've naturally always been extroverted because I sort of organically always have been pretty loud and, and, and pretty, um, pretty out there. I think that he sort of was able to take that, take those raw materials that I had and really enable me to be, um, in, in many, in many ways, the face, the face of the company. Um, and, and, and that was important for a couple of reasons for the, for the first reason is there probably is no better product visionary on the planet, uh, in my opinion, than Toby. Um, he just thinks of a product in a way that is just is unlike any, anything I've ever seen. And so, at least in the early days, in particular in the early days, his biggest value add to the business was really around making sure we had unequivocally the best product uh, in the world. And whatever I could do and whatever, uh, whatever we could do as a team to allow him the time and the focus to do that, um, that was going to make Shopify so much better. But he also quickly identified that one of my strengths may be talking about the company, whether that's in, in the context of, of, of media and PR, or whether that's in the context of things like building the Build a Business competition, which has become one of the largest competitions of its kind on the planet, and having to get people like Richard Branson and Tony Robbins and Damon John and Tim Ferriss, Marie Forley, all these incredible superhero entrepreneurs to get involved with Shopify. And so... Uh, in many ways, he sort of enabled me to do those sort of things and 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 get out there. And and I think what you said is is interesting because I think historically the CEO has always been the outward facing sort of um, you know extroverted kind of business sales marketing type person. And I think one of the things that has changed in the last couple of years, and and certainly uh, probably uh, a lot had to do with the relationship that Mark and Cheryl have at Facebook, where where you actually have um, founders. That remain in the CEO role and very technical, very product-focused founders. And so, I think that in, in many ways, um, this sort of new uh, role, this new COO role, uh, is very much a reflection of this new type of CEO role, which is highly technical, absolutely brilliant founders who should be the CEO of, 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 of these of these companies. And I, I, I absolutely believe that someone like Mark should be running Facebook and someone like Toby should be running and, and should be the CEO of, of, of Shopify. Um, I think that is the right role for them when you talk about highly technical um, companies like ours. Well, and it's what Jim Collins talked about in Good to Great when he talked about level five leadership, that personal humility and that real drive to succeed. And when they're humble enough to not let their ego get in the way and need to be the face of the company and they can allow someone who's better at it um, to do it and the company really does grow. It's funny because I remember meeting you back in around 2010 when I came in with um, to an event we were hosting there. I think I actually spoke at your offices that you guys hosted an event I was speaking at, but it was um, with the guys from Canvas Pop. And I actually thought you were the CEO at the time and then I remember leaving going, wow, that's amazing. Like, I don't even know if I met the CEO, but it doesn't matter because this guy Harley's really running the place. It was cool to really see that part of the relationship. So how do you and Toby work on the kind of the marriage? I always talk about the yin and yang relationship between the CEO and the COO. And it's in, in my mind, it's all, almost like a marriage where you've got to have um, you know, date nights and systems in place to make sure that relationship stays strong. What do you guys do to keep your relationship strong and growing and, um, and to keep the trust high? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a really good question. Um, and actually, I get a, I get a lot of uh, calls and, and emails from, from companies all over the world asking about my dynamic with, with, with Toby. And, and certainly the obvious, you know, we, we talk a lot about the yin and the yang. And, and I think that's, unfortunately, I think that's a little bit of a cop-out. Um, and it doesn't actually tell, doesn't provide much insight in terms of that dynamic. 
a couple things that I think have been really important for us. First of all, Toby and I are, are I mean, he, he's my boss. He's, he's also my mentor. And he's also one of my closest friends. We, we spend a lot of time together. We, we spend our, our weekends in many cases together. Um, so we have, a, we have our, our relationship extends well beyond just, just the, um, just the office. Um, but in terms of making sure our dynamic uh, is as effective as possible, the onus is on me, I believe, as the CEO to check in with him to make sure that he's getting everything that he needs from me. And uh, I check in with that fairly often, in some cases, almost on a, on a quarterly basis to say, look, here are the different areas of the business that I'm really focused on right now. Are there any things that I'm not currently doing that you think I should be doing? Or are there things that you're currently doing that you do not, that you do not want to be doing that I can pick up for you? And I think a lot of the problems that I, I hear from the CEO-COO relationships often stem from either a misalignment in terms of expectation or the data or the, um, uh, the perspective that they're, that they're working through is actually dated. The things have actually changed. So for example, I was basically the general counsel up until 2014 or so. I wasn't a very good general counsel, but I was, I was the only lawyer here. And, and so I played that role. But we, Toby and I always knew that, that that was not going to be the thing I was going to focus on. We just needed to hire a great general counsel. And we only really needed it as we began to think about our, our IPO, uh, which happened in 2015. So it was easy for me to take that off my plate because that wasn't something that I felt that I was world-class at. It was not, it was not something that uh, I really enjoyed doing. And it was not something that I believed that I could do better than anybody else. And, and so it was obvious to move that off my plate. Same sort of thing with, with you know, 2011, we hired Russ, who's our, our CFO. You know, I, was not, I, I understood the corporate finance side of running a business. I understood how to, how to raise money because of my business background and, and, and going to business school. But I was not a very good sort of quasi-CFO. So I think that, that, that ensuring that there is realignment uh, almost on a quarterly basis. Maybe it's maybe it's a different cadence for others. Maybe it's a monthly basis. And just saying, this is what I'm focused on because I think I can be world class at this. This is how I think I can have the biggest impact. And this is actually something I really enjoy doing. Using the sort of those three uh, those three um, vectors, uh, I think you end up with a really good dynamic between the CEO and the COO, especially if you continuously check in to make sure that those things haven't changed. As the story I've been told a couple times, a couple of years ago. Toby walked into my office and said, uh, "We, we got to build. We got to build an enterprise product. Uh, we, we have to sort of think about how we help much larger." What, what had happened was the background here was some merchants that started on Shopify when they were very, very small at their mom's kitchen table. Even they, they a lot of them grew to be like hundred million dollar a year businesses, sure. and they weren't leaving Shopify. They weren't. They weren't graduating off our platform. Firm, which is fairly unique in the SMB uh, software market. And so he came in and said, look, we, we got to build this. And it was obvious that what we needed was we needed a sales team. But that wasn't something that I was especially good at. I had no experience building out a massive sales org. And so I, it was very clear that I needed to sort of create some scaffolding. I had to create a foundation um, to make sure we, we did have some product market fit, to make sure that we did test some assumptions and, and that there was some there was some momentum there. But the second that we were able to check those boxes, yes, we have product market fit, yes, there's momentum, and yes, there's scaffolding, I then went ahead and, and brought in Lauren Pad- Paddleford, who's our VP of sales, and, and plus to, to run this operation and, and really scale it. And so the reason I bring up that example was Toby wanted me to get that started because that's really what I'm good at. But at a certain point, uh, my ability to scale that has diminishing marginal returns, and it was time to bring in someone else. And I think if the COO and the CEO are not connecting on a regular basis to to just align and, and ensure that um, that that we're both we both have an understanding of what the most impactful things that that I should be doing are, 
I, I think that's when you create, um, there's tension and confusion and, and all this bad stuff comes from that. So Toby and I meet every single week for a one-on-one. It's my one-on-one. So I bring to him the questions, the insight, the information that I require from him in order to better do my job. And, and again, whether it's every month or every quarter, I'll, I'll use that one-on-one. Uh, I'll use that one-hour one-on-one to ask him, all right, well, here's where I'm focused. Are there any things that I'm not focused on that you think I should be? Or is there something on your plate that, that you think I should take off your plate? And uh, just by being really candid and, and transparent and, and, and honest with each other, um, we've been able to cultivate uh, what I think is, is one of the best relationships I've ever had. And, and I think he would say the same. Yeah, I've, I've always found that the one-on-one meetings are, are critical. Do you hold them with your direct reports as well? I absolutely do. Yeah. So that, uh, one-on-ones at Shopify are fairly sacred. Uh, we, we don't care if you have big group meetings or you have massive team-wide summits. Those are really great and we encourage that. But one-on-ones are fairly sacred here. And I think the important part of the one-on-one is that uh, the manager should know that it's not their one-on-one. It's 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 their reports one-on-one. Bingo. And I think where where managers make uh, create problems is when they start treating one-on-one as if it's their own. My one-on-one with Toby is 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 it's my one-on-one and it's my opportunity to get what I need from him to to better to have a bigger impact and better do my job. So that's that's what we look at it. But back to your long answer to short question, back to your original question in terms of that dynamic, that dynamic has been cultivated over a very, very long period of time. And, um, and I, I think that it, it actually has gotten a lot better over time because I think both of us are sort of self-improvement junkies. We're both really introspective. We both, uh, you know, one of the things I've been working on the last couple of years is having a much higher degree of, of, of self-awareness. And um, I think as him and I both mature um, individually, I think that our relationship and our dynamic has also matured uh, in, a, in a really great way. Very cool. So you talked about um, about the fact that you're both self-improvement junkies. What are you focusing on in terms of working on on your skill set then today? So uh, I, I, this, this will not be surprising uh, for someone like you, but I've, uh, I've seen a coach since 2011 or so. Uh, I see, I, I, in fact, coaching has been such a huge part of my life, my professional life that we ended up uh, hiring all our coaches and, 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 and bringing them in-house. And so huh. uh, Shopify now has about 12 full-time coaches on staff. That's um, awesome. they're, they're incredible. Um, and, and most of our leaders, most people that manage, you know, that manage more than two or three people uh, see a coach here at, at Shopify. And I would say that uh, over, over time, um, the stuff that I work on sort of, uh, sort of changes. So for example, I mean, it's kind of the same reason that, uh, you know, there's a good chance that I, I, I may be at Shopify uh, for the rest of my life. And the cool part about a company like ours is that the, the requirements on me, the task that is, that is given to me constantly changes. I mean, I brought up in the early days raising money and I brought up, you know, how to do some of the legal stuff and building out a business team and a business group. But, you know, prior to going public, uh, you know, probably like we, we decided to go public uh, in early 2015, ended up ringing the bell at the New York Stock Exchange in May 2015. Um, but that was not, I, I'd never done that before. I'd never taken a company public. Uh, frankly, I, I'd never built a company uh, of, any, yeah, of, of any size over, you know, over, uh, over a small t-shirt business. So, um, but what's interesting about the opportunity that, that, that I've always felt I've had here is that every year my job completely changes. So whether that's, Hey, I got to get really good at fundraising, or I got to get really good at building a sales org, or I get really good at hiring the most talented people and poaching them from the biggest companies on the planet, 
or in 2015, I had to get really good at, at taking a company public. And I don't just mean the, you know, the, the roadshow and, and the investor pitch, but even in terms of how do you make sure the company is excited by it? How do you make sure that the stock price has not become something that, that people really focus on? Because it's in the long run, the stock price does reflect the value of the company. But in the short run, there's a lot of volatility. Um, so what I love most about my role here is, is the versatility of the task in front of me. And I've been very clear and candid with Toby that that's one of the things I, I, I value most here is that uh, my job is always quite different. And, and, and it's, a reflection on, it's a reflection of what the company needs most for me. Um, and that I think is just... I mean, if you have that and you can find that in your career, I think you got it made in a shade. You're, um, how do you protect your confidence along the way then? So I know the skill set side we talked about. How do you work on your confidence or, or are you just naturally confident? I'm not really sure I'm naturally confident, although I, I, I think I've always sort of spoke with a lot of conviction, which I think uh, maybe tricks people to thinking that I'm, I'm more confident than I actually am. I've been able to, because I've been an entrepreneur for so long, I've just got really good at dealing with ambiguity. I've been able to get really, really comfortable with being uncomfortable. In fact, I've almost taught myself that to the extent that now I seek out being uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. So when things are going a little bit too good, and things are a little bit too smooth. That's typical when I get when I when I worry most. Uh, when I find a problem, it, it actually is, is is a great opportunity because I now know I have a problem. Now I can go and fix it. Um, so I think that um, part of it is that I have people like Toby around me that um, believe in me and are, are constantly pushing me into the this sort of this next level of of of, uh, of understanding and this next level of you know operationalizing this company and, and running the business. Um, but I also have uh, what what I consider to be one of the most incredible groups of, of mentors and and. I, I know the the term mentor is kind of loaded for for a lot of your listeners. Um, I, I think most people confuse the term, but but I, I have five mentors in my life at any one given time. These are five people who come from a totally from all different backgrounds. Uh, one of them is a you know one of the largest real estate developers in, in Canada. Another one is you know is someone who owns one of the largest fashion companies on the planet. These are people that have committed to giving me one hour a month of their time, often wow. in person, but sometimes uh, on, a, on a Google Hangout or a Skype call. And I, and I rotate that. So for example, prior to becoming a dad, having to, to having our daughter, um, I knew nothing obviously about parenthood. And so I spent a lot more time with people that I really thought were exceptional parents. And, and they were my mentors. And, and now that I, I don't think I've got the hang of being a dad yet, but I feel like I, I know the basics of being a dad. Um, now that is obviously a little bit less important. Uh, whereas uh, for me, you know, Shopify now, is, now has more than 3,000 people. We're going to be at 5,000 people, I'm sure, the next couple of years. I now am looking to talk to, to great leaders around the world who are running companies with thousands of people because this is a new thing for me. And I think that by surrounding myself with people that are, you know, better and smarter, more experienced. It's not only humbling, uh, but it also provides with confidence that none of them actually knew what they were doing when they got started, and, and, and yet they figured it out. And so that pro- provides me with a little bit of, under- of an understanding of, of uh, or a little bit of confidence that I can do this myself too. That's cool. Do you, do you have a typical day that you follow currently? I know that would change as your role changes over time, but do you have a typical day that you follow at all or any routines that help you? Yeah, um, well, a little bit. I mean, I... Years ago, I read uh, Paul Graham's post, Managers versus Maker Schedules. Uh, I haven't read that article in probably eight years. Uh, so I, I assume it's still online somewhere. But effectively, what Paul Graham talked about in that is, is he was dividing his time between a maker schedule, which is basically four-hour chunks of time, versus a manager schedule, which is half-hour, one-hour chunks of time. And I, I really do... I, I, I do subscribe to that. I think that works really well. And so 
Um, most of my one-on-ones are on Tuesdays and Thursdays, and Monday, and Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays are typically longer chunks of time where um, I can I can either do strategy or I can do much deeper dive, you know, whiteboarding sessions with different teams, or I could I could just spend a lot more time um, being proactive and, and and figuring out where we're going as opposed to simply answering a bunch of questions that are are, are coming up in a bit of reactive sense. So I, I have found dividing my week into those sort of chunks of time, different days have different uh, d- different um, chunks has been really, really helpful. You know, that, that's been something that's been pretty consistent. Beyond that, I, I kind of go in, in I kind of go in different rhythms. Um, I try to get to the gym most most days after work around six o'clock. This way I'm home for dinner with my wife and daughter at seven o'clock. Um, and I, I do that less about staying in shape. I do that because I just find it's a great way for me to clear my head before I go home and I'm able to sort of leave and uh, leave a lot of the uh, a lot of the, the the work stuff um, in the gym and go home with a bit of a clear mind. And and, and probably the, the thing that's most cliche today, but it's been something that's been helpful to me is uh, I try to do a 10-minute uh, meditation or mindfulness practice every day. Um, I usually use something like Insight Timer. I used to use Headspace. Uh, and I try to do that first thing when I get into the office in, in, uh, in one of the small uh, phone booths. I'll just go in there for 10 minutes and just do some breathing exercises. That stuff I find really helps. I do some other stuff that I that's been really you know helpful to me. Um, uh, so a couple of things that, that that Toby and I have sort of tried to do from day one is number one always be home for dinner with our wives and, and now our, our kids. We try never to travel on weekends whenever possible. That's been really helpful. So even during the IPO roadshow uh, where you know we were I think we did ninety three meetings uh, all over uh, all over uh, the world. Um, we made sure that we were home Friday evening or Friday nights. So we can spend Saturday. Uh, with our families, and then get back on the road Sunday evening, and and you know fly out to New York or Memphis or wherever we're going or San Francisco that day to continue the road show. Um, so that's also been something that has been really really helpful. And I also I also know what my what my rip cords are. Um, you know, if in order for me to be truly focused and present on a Monday morning. In the summertime, I, I need to be at the cottage or on, on the boat. Uh, in the wintertime, I need to be on the ski hill during during the weekends. It just uh-huh. I, I I now know what I need. I you know fr- uh, you know in order for me to be really focused on a Monday morning, Friday night is probably spent with my wife at an amazing restaurant drinking a great bottle of wine. My wife's a food blogger. She has a, a radio show in Canada where she talks about uh, all the best restaurants. And so uh, so I, I've just over time and, and with, with some practice and some reflection, I've just spent a lot of my time trying to. Trying to figure out what are the things that I require in order to be uh, fully present, fully focused on Monday morning, and um, it's certainly not anything that's been easy. But um, over time, I've been able to cultivate a really, really good sort of dynamic there. That's really cool. Um, I'm a big foodie as well. So, what's your what's your wife's food uh, blog? So, uh, most of it's done through Instagram. So, it's uh, modern underscore hostess. But she's on uh, CFRA every Thursday with Evan Solomon at, at four o'clock in uh, in Ottawa and syndicated elsewhere. Uh, and actually, uh, what's pretty cool is she's now a first time entrepreneur. She just opened up an ice cream shop in Ottawa called Sunday School, S U N D A E School. And uh, so she just opened up Sunday School last summer, and it's just the most adorable little ice cream shop you've ever seen. And it's it's really cool. And so helping her with her first uh, entrepreneurial venture has been a real thrill for me. Nice. Where's her ice cream shop? I've got some friends and family in Ottawa. I'll get them to go check it out. Uh, yeah, it's on it's on Beechwood. Uh, it's in the New Edinburgh area, which which is where we live. Uh, so it's nice. on Beechwood, and uh, yeah, it's really cool. So um, one of my early mentors, and, and I actually went to school in Ottawa. I did my undergraduate degree in law. Um, I was a, similar to you. I was actually sitting on a plane one day reading a a French franchise agreement. So it was written in French. It was uh, following French civil code, and I'm reading this franchise agreement on a plane, going, 
what the hell am I doing? I'm, I'm not a lawyer. I don't speak French very well. There's no way I should be reading this darn thing. Um, but it just brought back some fond memories to Ottawa. But one of my very first mentors was a, built a company called College Pro Painters. And he told me that he was the founder and CEO of College Pro. And he said that true leadership is saying no more often than we, than we say yes. I'm curious how you guys say no at the size you're getting to um, you know, with all the pressures and demands on your time. Yeah, it's it's actually gotten a lot easier, uh, not more difficult, believe it or not. Um, mostly because we have a we have a pretty focused view of, of who we want to be and, and and what are the things we want to do and what we don't want to do. Um, so you know the fact that um, our merchants got really big, they sort of pulled us up market. Uh, we haven't we haven't shifted up market. Where our focus is still on entrepreneurs and SMEs that are getting started, but our merchants on their own sort of pulled us up market because some of them got got so big. And so we realized that that was an opportunity for us. But there was a, there was the right time for us to introduce Shopify Plus to the world, uh, and there would be a, there would be a wrong time. Um, often we're getting you know people always ask us if we're gonna you know we're gonna go and help restaurants for example and, and help restaurants. It's just the, that would be a distraction to us. Fundamentally, what we want to do is we want to focus on, on on entrepreneurs and people that sell physical products, and that may change eventually. But by by really well articulating uh, who we are, what we want to be. And, and where we want to go, um, it means that every one of the three thousand people that work at Shopify has their own litmus test or has their own set of vectors that they can go ahead and figure out. Uh, how do I make a decision? How do I decide what I want to do and, and or what I should do, what I shouldn't do? And you know, when, when someone misses it, we 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 make sure that we you know we we explain why that was the wrong area to go into, and and we remind the entire company once again, again, this is what we care about, this is what we value, this is where we want to go. Actually, it's it's gotten easier with time, not 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 uh, not more difficult. Even though we have a lot more people, and I think part of it is that we as a company has have grown up, but also we as leaders of the company have grown up. And so I think uh, in the early days, uh, at least for me, I, I didn't really, you know, I, I would I would kind of say yes to everything because I didn't really know where we were going. I really wasn't sure what was going to work, what wasn't going to work, and we were throwing a lot of you know a lot of stuff at the wall and seeing what's what's stuck. And and now we kind of know what, what works and what doesn't. And so I think by articulating a very clear vision to the company of this is who we are and who we want to be, um, it makes it easier for people on their own without even asking, uh, hey, is this something we want to do? And, and that's, been, that's been great. That's really cool. Um, I, I know we talked a little bit about the one-on-one meetings that you have and how critical they are. And, and it sounds like you've got great systems for those. One of my recent books was called Meetings Suck. I'm curious as to, and I wrote it because I wanted people to not complain about meetings. I wanted them to understand how to run effective meetings and how to attend meetings and what meetings to have. Tell me what, you know, a couple of tips that you guys use internally related to meetings that are working well for you. Uh, I'm not sure this is, this may be really common sense and pretty obvious, but you know, if there's more than five or six people in a meeting, it's not a meeting, it's a, it's a presentation and it shouldn't, it, and, and there's no way to have a great discussion with, with that many people. So we, we tend to avoid uh, what we'd call, what I would call roommates, people, random people that are just kind of there um, because I, I don't think it's a good use of time. I remember years ago, someone used to bring in this, this stopwatch to a meeting and, and calculate how much the meeting was costing and, and you'd see sort of the dollars go up and up. I didn't think that was effective. That was kind of a cute thing to do. But I think now, generally, we've, we've just explained and, and, and reiterate over and over again that good meetings are kind of obvious. They, there's a clear objective of, 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 of what you want to accomplish. There's a clear view of who should be there. Um, and, and beyond that, uh, we, we kind of let, let people... You know, we want people to act like adults and, and, and make good user, user best judgments. That being said, when we see a meeting that we feel it's just not productive, it's not effective, there's way too many people there, uh, we will call it out. In fact, what we've done is we've sort of 
put the onus on everyone that works here to to sort of police these meetings on their own. And so the onus is on every single person in every single meeting to say, is this really the meeting that should be happening? Are the right people in the room? Is there a clear objective? I've been in meetings where without even without even saying a word, the meeting was sort of, you know, halted after a couple of minutes because it was clear that um, it, it, the wrong people were the wrong people were in the room um, and, and there was no clear objective of what we wanted to do. It could have easily been settled with an email or a Slack conversation. So um, we are not there's no there's no rules of engagement in terms of meetings at Shopify. There is necessarily uh, th- there's no you know commandments of of how meetings should run. But you know, we we hire people that are highly intelligent, incredibly ambitious. Most people at Shopify would self-identify as entrepreneurs, and and by giving them um, both the freedom but also the onus to ensure our meetings are are effective, I think we've been able to cut down on on superfluous meetings. Which, uh, frankly, I just I hate. I, I mean, <laughs> I, I hate a meeting that just doesn't have to happen. And, and and I've read your book, and I think you you make a lot of great points there in terms of yeah, I think for a lot of people they consider meetings to be doing the work, and, and I don't believe that. Um, the meetings can set context. The meetings could help get the work done in a, in a more efficient or effective manner. Um, but but having a meeting itself should not be um, a, a check you know a checkbox next to a, a to do list. Um, that is it, that that I think is ineffective. Agreed, agreed. You may have already answered my next question here, but you guys at Shopify have really become, I would say, the culture company in all of Canada to work for um, and certainly rank amongst the best of the best in the world. But I talk to companies that are based in Toronto and based in Ottawa, and, and I'll tell you, virtually every company in Toronto is scared of Shopify right now in terms of the war on talent and getting good people. And, and I don't think it's the perks and I don't think it's necessarily your office space. What is it that you're doing that has turned Shopify into this magnet for great talent. Yeah, I, I agree. It's absolutely not perks. Uh, it's it's funny how often um, people confuse uh, perks with with culture. Yeah, you know, we have some really cool perks here. We have you know full time chefs in every office that cook really delicious, healthy food. Every person at Shopify uh, gets maid service at their home that we pay for. So we send uh, cleaning cleaning uh, staff to their homes to clean their their houses twice a month. All that stuff is really great, but it's just there to make their lives a little bit better. That is absolutely not a reason to work here. Um, those are just sort of things that that we think make our our our, our team's lives a bit better. Um, I think the culture here is is really has sort of been organically developed over time. I think for the most part, most people at Shopify can can have their own companies. They can be the CEOs of their own companies. But we believe that we can sort of come together. It's kind of like the Avengers. We're kind of unstoppable, and so we've created a place where founder types and and founders and entrepreneurs and people that you know are self starters and 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 that typically would be doing their own thing, that they can not only uh, come to this place, but they can thrive in this place. Um, and I think that that's one area that is really important. We, we sort of have a policy here, which is default to open. So you know, even during the IPO process, um, you know, there were some things that we, we couldn't disclose to the whole company. That was really difficult for us. Most other companies, that would be no problem. But just for securities regulation laws, um, there were some things that we had to sort of keep uh, to a much smaller group of of stakeholders, and and that was tough for us because, frankly, we are absolutely default open culture. Once a week, or uh, in some cases, uh, once every two weeks, um, we do an AMA and ask me anything, where anyone from the company can ask the exec team or the leaders of the company any question they want. Uh, they can do so anonymously, or they can add their name to it. And and I think that ability to put ourselves in a vulnerable situation where people can ask anything they want, but but also get an answer that they feel uh, they're being treated like a sophisticated uh, adult, uh, I, I think makes makes us a really great place to to be. Um, and I, I think probably lastly, I think most people at Shopify are, are here doing their life's work. 
um, that is really unique. It's it's for for most of us, it's not a job. It is you know we this is this is what we want to do. This is how we want to uh, this is how we want to spend our time with the people that we want to spend our time with. I think a lot of the companies that maybe you're talking about, they potentially are looking for a shortcut to how to how to cultivate culture. And and you know if, if you had to if you put a gun to me and say, hey, what is culture? I would say that culture is probably what people do when no one is looking. What what happens when when no one's around and people are left to their own devices? What do they do? And if they do the right things, then you probably have a really great culture. And if they do the, the wrong things, you don't really have a great culture. And and no matter how great your hoodies are or how great your chefs are, none of that actually matters. So I, I just heard a story last week that over Christmas time, uh, a physical retailer in, in Toronto, their, their shop by point of sale system, their, their card swiper had broke. They put it in their pocket and they had sat in it and they crushed their card swiper. And they just simply put out a tweet and said, hey, Shopify would love to get a new card swiper. We're about to have a, a massive Boxing Day sale. And like an hour later, that person uh, that person sent me a note saying, I don't know if you know this, but someone someone from Shopify during the holidays got on their bicycle um, and biked <laughs> over to my store to give me a new card reader. That's um, awesome. That is what culture is. Culture, culture is what happens when no one tells you what to do and, and people just kind of do the right thing. And, and I think we've made it easier here to do the right thing. That's, that's really cool. Um, last question I'll leave you with, and this I'd like you to address directly to the second in commands. So anyone who's listening who is a COO or VP Ops, General Manager, Director of Ops, whatever your title is, but you're the second in command to the CEO, what would you give them as the top three tips for them to excel in their role and also for them to help the company grow? Yeah, I mean, I, I talked number one about recalibration. So, uh, you know, as a COO, make sure that you continuously recalibrate your role, your responsibilities, uh, your area of focus with your CEO. Just because a year and a half ago, you know, your CEO told you, "Hey, here's what you should do," doesn't mean he or she hasn't changed their mind. And and CEOs are really busy, and so the onus is on you as a COO to recalibrate and reconfirm, "Hey, is this still the most impactful thing I can be doing?" Um, that's probably the first. The second thing, and this is probably the most important one of all, um, is that you know, when I um, when I when I first started to look into the CEO role, um, I, I read that Harvard Business uh, the Harvard Business Review article. You talked about the different types. I also read the book. I think it's it's um, it's Riding Shotgun, which is a yeah. book about COOs and, and and how that works. But I also asked my board of directors for a list of their top COOs that they've ever encountered. And uh, without saying specific names, I mean, it's the COOs of, of all the major technology companies that were, that were listed. And, and I got a chance to talk to most of them. And I asked some very simple questions. Uh, what is your role? How has it changed? Uh, you know, what do you like most about it? Uh, what, are some, what are some things you wish you would have known when you first took on the role that you now know, having spent years in the, in, in the role? And and my one major takeaway from that process of talking to some of the most iconic chief operating officers on the planet was that none of them have the same job. Every single one of them has a very different job. And so I think that you know the the, the Harvard Business Review article was interesting because it showed that there are you know six different archetypes of, of what a chief operating officer is. But where where I think it, it missed the mark is that uh, there's not six. There's probably six hundred, and a lot of it has to do with. You know, it, it, you're almost like a mirror image of of your CEO, uh, and 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 the onus again is on you as the CEO to figure out what is your CEO the best at, where is his or her time best spent, and then figure out a way to get everything else off their plate and 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 make things easier for them. I think that's a great great place to be, um, and so. Again, don't follow one, you know, rubric and, and just because, excuse me, you know, Harley at Shopify CEO role looks like this and he looks after these groups doesn't mean you should because again, it all depends on what that dynamic is w- with your CEO. Um, and I would say probably the last one is know when to get out of the way. 
again, you know, I was able to help raise our first round of financing. I was able to uh, do a lot of our contract negotiation in the early days. I was able to uh, at least put the initial scaffolding around our sales organization. But our sales org now has, you know, it, it's a it's a large sales org. It has its own office in Waterloo, uh, in, in Waterloo, just out of Toronto. Uh, there is no way that I could be running it, uh, running that sales org at that at this at that level of sophistication today. And so, getting really good at knowing when to get out of the way versus when to really sort of put your head down and really dive deep. Um, that is really, really important. Um, so I, I would say those are probably three things that have been quite, quite helpful and, and valuable to me. Harley, thank you very much. I, I mean, what you've done with Shopify, what you're doing with, uh, with the C100 and part of the Maple Syrup Mafia, building all these great companies up here in Canada. Um, you guys are literally building a, a bleeding edge company worldwide right now. And it's really fun to watch you do it. But thank you so much for sharing everything you did with us today. I appreciate it. No, thanks so much. I feel like the luckiest guy in the world. So I, I'm very fortunate I get to do this. And, and thanks so much for having me on your podcast. You've been listening to Second in Command with Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please make sure to subscribe. To learn more best practices from industry-leading COOs, please visit COOalliance.com.